Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello and welcome to episode number eight of the LKM Co. Youth and Education podcast. This week, or fortnight, I'm in conversation with my colleague, Dr. Sam Bars. Sam is the Director of Research at LKM Co. And we're talking around social mobility in this episode from quite a variety of different angles. So first off, we start with perceptions of different generations. So the perceptions of different generations about UK as a socially mobile society. We go on to social mobility of young people while they're at university. And then we also talk about what some employers are trying to do to improve social mobility in society. After this episode, I'm going to take a short break for the summer and then we'll be back in September with a number of great guests, which I've already recorded and we'll go live then. So sit down, listen, walk your dog, ride your bike, wash up or whatever you usually do in your podcasting and enjoy. Let's get geeking. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Okay, so I'm sitting here on a balmy Monday afternoon with Dr Sam Bars. Hey Sam. Hi Aisha. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> it's, it's so balmy. It, balmy and balmy all at once. <laughs> Very hot, Dalston summer, which I love actually. Yeah, it's lovely. I have to say, I do love it. Yeah. So um, what have we got for this week's research roundup, Sam? Um, we've got a distinct social mobility theme this week. Um, it's been one of those weeks or fortnights when a few important things have come out all on a kind of related topic, but all addressing it from slightly different angles. Um, I think social mobility also feels like it's as a concept, as a thing that people are interested in and studying and bringing out policies on, feels like quite a hot thing this year as well. So, yeah, should be an interesting chat, I think. Yeah, it's okay. So what's your um, the first thing that's caught your eye? So the first thing that caught my eye was a piece of research um, from the Social Mobility Commission, um, the Social Mobility Barometer. I think they conducted this in collaboration with YouGov, the pollsters. And it was less a study of the, the state of social mobility in the nation at the moment and more a study of people's perceptions of it or if people think we live uh, in a society where social mobility is, is true, is what we see around us. So I guess to, to kind of go back a step, in my, in my mind social mobility um, is the notion of kind of ending up in life somewhere different to where you started, like at its most simple level that's kind of what we mean Um, and in kind of social research often in more concrete terms what that means is ending up doing a different job to the job that your parents did Um, and I think when the government says that we want to live in a socially mobile society on the whole we mean you you might start somewhere disadvantaged or you might start somewhere where your parents did low skilled low paid work ending up doing higher skilled higher paid work Um, probably earning more as a result and maybe having different life chances. 
Um, so if we live in a if we live in a meritocracy, then uh, if you work hard and there are opportunities in society and you grab them, then uh, social mobility will happen and you will end up somewhere different and better off than your parents. Which is there's a lot going on in there. It's very kind of tricky and troublesome, but that's the kind of the ideal that we. I think we're meant to have in mind when we talk about social mobility. I noticed that when you said that, there was if was used two or three times. <laughs> yeah, like conditional. Any comments? Slips out. <laughs> uh, I think. I guess um, there's a lot of um, when we talk about social mobility. In my mind, there are so many things that have to be true before we can say that we live in a society where it's it's easy to be socially mobile and for us to say with any certainty that we live in a meritocracy. So like in a meritocracy, it's almost like an equation, like effort plus ability equals the outcome that you see. So, um, you know, if you're a school-aged child and you work hard and you, you are able, well, it's like a really tricky concept, but that's kind of the equation that is presented, then we live in a society such that you'll be rewarded for that hard work and having those abilities. But the if comes in in terms of, well, what are the structural conditions around you that need to be true for those outcomes to be realised? Like, are there decent jobs in abundance that you can access? Uh, are employers in their interviewing and em- employing practices completely free of discrimination, for instance? Um, well, then are, we've spoken about that a couple of times, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. So the things that we discussed in previous podcasts kind of come back when we talk about social mobility. Um, so I think it's a really tall order. Um, to say that we live in a society where social mobility is kind of in abundance and we can be seen to be a meritocracy. But what this, um, well, we're going to be discussing some other pieces of research that look at, kind of, I guess, exposing some of the, the gaps and the difficulties that young people face in being socially mobile, going into higher education and then out the other end and realising their potential. Um, but this barometer was trying to pick up on whether, almost as a starting point, people actually think it's true we live in a society where you can you can get on. Um, there are some interesting age-related trends in the data, so I guess a couple of things um, jumped out at me, basically, put next to each other. Um, among all the questions that they asked people, young people seem most sceptical that we live in the kind of society at the moment where um, you can end up somewhere different to your background. So they were most likely to agree with the statement that your background determines where you'll end up. Um, but at the same time, young people were most hopeful. So they, were, they seemed to be the kind of most optimistic group. They were most likely to agree with the statement that in the future generations, we'll be more able to escape the conditions of their background. So That's interesting. Speak. So they were kind of mm, most jaded in terms of what they think actually happens, mm. but most hopeful in terms of what they are hoped for in the future. Yeah, which I thought was a really interesting kind of, almost like a paradox. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Because it begs the question, well, where are they getting this hope from? I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but you want to know where they're, where they're getting it from. What is fueling this idea in their heads that, okay, things aren't maybe so great now. You know, like myself, if I'm from a disadvantaged background, or the people around me, if, if I've got a lot of friends who are from disadvantaged backgrounds, are maybe unlikely to end up somewhere different. But if I have kids, then... I don't think that will be necessarily the case for them. It will be easier for them to, to get on. Maybe it's a natural optimism of youth, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's kind of one thing I was wondering. Um, it, kind of the flip side of it is also really interesting that older, older people that they polled were more likely to think that things were 
I guess that it's, they were more likely to think it's easier easy to get on now in yeah. current society. Is that easier likely. for themselves or easier for the upcoming young people? I suppose they, thinking of the phrasing of the question, I think older people thought it was easy for young people growing up today to end up somewhere different. Well, that's actually a really interesting question because I think, especially in education circles, I always, anyway, find myself thinking of social mobility as something that happens between when you're young or, or when you're born and where you kind of end up, say, when you retire, for instance. But actually, it can happen at any time in your life. Um, and it can kind of go both ways. You know, social mobility isn't just a, a neat upward journey for people. <laughs> exactly, all kinds, of, all kinds of things can happen. Um, so I suppose the, the older people that they polled seem to be a bit more confident that uh, younger people today um, can escape the conditions of their, of their birth and of their upbringing. But they didn't have a very rosy view of where things were, where things were going. And I, from entirely anecdotal experience, I know a lot of older people who have this very kind of compassionate fear for the risks that young people today are that have around them. They, they know that, for instance, the labour market, although in some ways offering a lot more opportunities than it did when they were young, is also more insecure and more risky. Um, and I think they also, they're also aware that there are kind of big technological upheavals that I think older people feel a lot more because the, the world is is changing in a lot of ways that are quite alien to them. And I think they read that stuff back onto younger people and kind of fear for them as well. It's interesting because in some respects, um, older people, it could be argued if you were very young, I mean, we're kind of medium young, but if you were very young, <laughs> that <laughs> older people are the reason why, if you had that viewpoint, there is potentially this opportunity. Um, and so they're the ones who could have done something about it. Mm. Uh, yeah, especially if they're old enough to... Uh, well, especially if they still vote, for instance, or if they're old enough to kind of influence the policy process, or if they're, if they're parents of children who, who are still going through the education system, then, um, as we'll discuss in relation to one of the other bits of research we're talking about today, there is still, um, there's still a lot... If social mobility is important to us, then we have to recognise that actually a lot of that happens outside the education system, in families, and the kind of things that young people do around the education system in the rest of their lives, that has at least as much to do with how socially mobile they're going to be as the quality of the education they get, the other experiences they go through in their life. So, um, for any kind of uh, any any parents sharing the fears of the people who are polled, that young people might not be as socially mobile as they'd like them to be in future there's actually there's probably a lot you can do as as parents or as, as older people to help that how did the um how was the poll conducted so you, was it um like a stratified thing or yeah that's a good question um so my knowledge of the sample um is that it was a nationally representative sample so i guess it would have been would have been stratified um to make sure that they were able to read that sample to the whole population hmm. um so i think it was maybe one or two thousand um, and that's what makes it they it certainly allowed them to to stratify by age I think that's one of the really really interesting things because social mobility is um, it's not a snapshot concept it's something that when we talk about social mobility we're talking about something that's going to happen over the lifetime of an individual or a cohort um, and so I think it's really interesting when we're looking at those sorts of questions and concepts to 
breakdown perspectives by age. So what do people think just about to start out on this journey and what do older people think who are maybe at the end of it um, or have experienced a whole life in this society and know all of its vagaries and opportunities? Um, yeah. It's a shame we can't do some kind of longitudinal study of what people, the same cohorts, thought when they were young and then revisited a different mm. yearly or, you know, have many year intervals. Mm. It'd be interesting to see if people's just your perspective changes. Because aren't there studies that suggest that um, just in general, older people, uh, well, older people are happier when they reflect their experiences than younger people. Mm. I don't know if they're more okay. optimistic though, but yeah, right. sometimes your the perspective shifts as you're older. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Mm. And I thought that's just brought into my head is that we do we do have longitudinal data in in Britain at least with the kind of the um, British cohort study, national trial development study. These are studies that started back in the the late 50s and early 70s, following a cohort, a large cohort of young people right the way through their lives. It's where we get some of the most fascinating survey data. Um, You've got things like the Millennium Cohort Study, which was one that started 17 years ago and is now following that group of young people right the way through their lives. And those studies give us a sense of, by looking at where these kids started and where they've ended up in terms of their careers and and the jobs that they're doing, whether we do live in a... uh, in a socially mobile society. But I don't know actually if they ask about whether people perceive themselves to be in a socially mobile society. Because mm. um, some, some of the evidence coming from those surveys suggests that the ability of people to move out of the conditions of their youth has kind of stalled a bit. And actually we don't, there's still a lot, we've got a long way to go before we can say we live in a socially mobile society. I know it wasn't one of our original pieces of research but that we were going to discuss today, mm. but... What are the reasons for the stalling? Do we know? Mm. So in that time, we've probably seen an expansion of educational opportunities, and I'd argue the kind of the quality and standard of education is arguably improved as well. And that's one thing that I guess young people have over older generations today is that they've they're probably going through a school system that's you know kind of more developed and arguably more inclusive and of a higher standard than it ever has been, although there's a long, always a long way to go. Um, the other variable, I guess, would be the labour market and what's, what's happened in the labour market. There's been a shift away, in terms of the number of jobs anyway, from lower-skilled manual work, but I think there's also been an expansion in relatively low-skilled service sector work. Mm. So I, I guess my... I don't, actually, I don't know... I don't know what the reasons are, but my hunch is that there have been kind of structural shifts in the labour market towards work that might be in very different sectors to 40 years ago, but in terms of the skills and opportunities and the opportunities to develop, maybe don't offer a great deal more anyway. Um, Okay, so the barometer was interesting, um, and kind of views of old people versus younger people. Yeah. Um, Anything else that was interesting from that barometer? Or was that the main thing that jumped out? For me, that's the same thing that jumped out. I think it also jumped out because at the moment, uh, you know, post-election, everyone is looking at kind of generational distinctions in in things like kind of voting patterns as well. So for me, that was another interesting suggestion that age is such an important distinguisher at the moment in terms of people's attitudes. Mm -hmm. And this seems to kind of confirm the same thing. Okay, great. And what's the next piece? Uh, the next thing was uh, the Social Mobility Employer Index, um, which I think was the first attempt to 
take a look at what large employers are doing in this country and kind of rank them. I think it's the first exercise in the world of kind of ranking um, employers according to, to what they're doing. Um, now, this is something that I was going to kind of quiz you, yeah. quiz you a little <laughs> on. Um, I, one thing that I noticed is that they didn't have a great deal in there about what they, how they'd actually kind of put it I thought together. That, I thought the very same thing. Right. So it sounds like they're, um, it's kind of a, a collection. So the Social Mobility Commission, uh, Social Mobility Foundation and the City of London, I think it was, okay. kind of clubbed together to try and um, do this initiative. And they have uh, tried to rank um, British employers for the first time. Um, related to what they're trying to do to ensure social mobility. But they're looking, well, what, the first thing I noticed is that there were lots of uh, companies ending in LLP, so they're law firms basically. Mm. And there were quite a few of them in the top 50. Mm. And then I looked and saw that law was one of the areas that they were concentrating on. Um, so it is skewed in some respect. But um, they, the press release says that they aim to encourage firms to share their initiatives and progress in becoming more inclusive employers. Um, and then to reveal which sectors and companies are taking the issue of social mobility most seriously. Mm. So it sounds a bit like, um, I don't know, I remember a few years ago when the Times came out with the top 100 graduate uh, workplaces. Mm. It's almost by creating it that it, talk, it creates that dialogue and people want to be part of it. I think it seems to be that kind of a thing. Mm. Um, so they looked at 100 employers from 17 sectors um, who collectively employ a million people and got them to submit their entries. So it was a kind of self-selecting sample, really, about mm. what they do to try and improve social mobility. Um, so I think it's something that's to be applauded, and then in subsequent years it'd be interesting to see how that can be widened or um, how they selected and so on, because people had to present their own reasons for being included, mm. that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Were there any kind of... Was there anything positive in there that you you took away, is there anything that employers look like they're doing that seems, that either kind of encouraged or surprised you? I think the whole concept in itself is an encouraging one. Like it's, it's encouraging that employers want to be known for trying to combat or improve social mobility. I think that in mm. itself is, is positive and they can get you know, 100 fairly big firms to want to be included in that. So, as an example, some household names are uh, the BBC, which comes in at 28, KPMG, uh, Scalenskar, they're the kind of builders, aren't they? Building services, I think, Scalenskar. Okay. Um, uh, Clifford Chance, Rolls-Royce, Lloyds Banking. So there's lots of different places, EDF Energy, O2, lots of different sectors covered. Mm. So fairly large employers, that's what it looks like in the, in the first instance. Mm. Um, so and also civil service and so on and so forth so there's quite a spread of the types of companies that are included mm. which I thought was useful and it's like I I couldn't for me there were there were some really it was quite a nice insight for me into the sorts of activities we might describe when we're talking about um, employers um, contributing to making it a more socially mobile society because I think we focus a lot on what for instance schools can do um, and what young people themselves can do um, to ensure they can be as socially mobile as possible. But we don't often look at the kind of um, like the labour demand side, so what employers are, are doing. And there's there seems to suggest that in there there are um, activities like 
at the very least kind of monitoring who it is that you're employing. So asking yeah. about people's social background, asking for the postcode of their school so that employers can keep tabs on, well, are, how many people are we actually employing from disadvantaged backgrounds? And within that kind of looking at the higher ranks in our organisation, how many of those people are actually from disadvantaged backgrounds? Or? Which, which I think is an, it's a positive, it's a good start because, you know, for some time the, there's always the optional form in many large companies where they have their the kind of equalities monitoring and they look at different things. They look at gender, they look at how people self-identify in terms of their race, um, sometimes they'll do sexuality as well and, and religion. Um, and so, you know, class would be an interesting one to do, although we have spoken about the difficulties of knowing what it means to be working class, for example. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's um, self-identified. But yeah, mm. I think it's good to say what, um, one of the key points was that firms are now uh, asking current employees about their social background and also um, new employees, and four in ten ask the type of school that uh, the, their applicants have attended. Mm. So that's a useful thing. Um, and it's just saying, although one thing that could be something to improve is that about kind of under 20% of them are setting social mobility targets. But having said that, that still means that a reasonable number are starting, starting to set them. I, I wouldn't necessarily mm. thought that any were doing that. Mm. So that's a, it's good that some firms do see this as something important to do. Mm. And I was something that occurred to me when I was reading through this, this index, this attempt to rank employers according to what they're doing to help social mobility is well what's the incentive of if you're an employer what's your incentive to get involved in this in this social project to make us a more just society and there was a lot there seems to be a lot in um in the index uh from employers to say well we we think it's a worthy um a worthy thing to set out to do they seem to be suggesting that if they're consistently employing from a certain section of society they might be missing out on people with certain experiences, certain knowledge to bring to bear on their profession and that might be to their detriment. So um, it's that didn't quite tally for me when you looked at some of the statistics in the index which suggest that employers, so a lot of it was to do with the university outreach work and apparently um, the top 11 universities are visited more by these employers than all the other universities put together <laughs> which I thought was a really stark statistic wasn't it like yeah. they're, they're still basically targeting uh, traditional the highest places yeah traditional highest ranking universities when they look for their which seems completely illogical if they want you know traditionally how we might put in inverted commas the best the best people to fill the positions but they're also saying that they know they probably aren't the best people because for all sorts of reasons people who are phenomenally bright and hardworking might not get into those universities mm. so well I was just going to say we already know about the issues that top ranking universities have with regards to making their own student pools uh, suitably diverse in a variety of ways right so yeah they're kind of already doing it from a quite narrow pool who itself selects from a quite narrow pool <laughs> right right so there seems to be a hell of a long way to go before I think they can claim to be, until they really diversify the, the kind of institutions they're going to when they're motivating graduates to come and, come and work for them before they can, so they're really contributing to the social mobility in my mind, but I don't know what your takeaway was from the index, if you felt it was something that was like a good start or if it's almost a distraction, I don't know. Oh, a distraction, that's interesting. So for me, I thought it was, um, when you know, we got an email about it, I thought, okay, this is, it was, it was worth me looking a bit more at it and thinking, okay, this is interesting. So in the first instance, it caught my attention. And then secondly, I think it's a good start. In terms of, is it a distraction? 
Yes and no, because I think you can have... I guess the question in my head is, what's the thing that people need to focus on trying to do? You know, do you look at improving social mobility? Do you uh, look at increasing gender diversity? Do you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Um, so should you be trying to do all those things at once, or is that basically impossible? Mm. Um, and if you're a large employer, what's the thing to do? I guess you have to start somewhere. So in my head, I'm thinking, is it a distraction? No, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to try and improve your own practices and make it so that you're contributing to a fairer society. I don't know if that sounds a little bit wishy-washy of me, but I don't think that's ever a bad thing. In terms of your point, I think it can be easy to be tokenistic about it and to get somebody to, I don't know, you know the schools, they have things like quality kite marks and all this kind of thing, and get someone mm. to, um, for a couple of weeks, tick all the times that they did whatever they did to get a, get a badge. <laughs> it sounded like a bit of a kite mark cynic. You know, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that it has to reflect what you actually do. So as you're yeah. saying, it's all very well to say this, but then when it comes around to your main recruiting drive for graduates, if you only go to, I don't know, say... 15 universities in the country that's where you spend most of your time and you already know that those universities are ones where it's not massively a place of social mobility in themselves like an engine of that then maybe what you actually do doesn't match your words I think that's the thing so I kind of think it's great if you can have some longer lasting processes and practices that back up your desire Mm. yeah it it can't be a bad thing to have high profile companies wanting to do that Mm. and to widen the debate that's my kind of initial view yeah I had that same kind of I guess slightly ambivalent stance on it it's going to be interesting to see how this develops in future years and for me as a researcher I really hope the next time they explain how they did it there's got to be there's got to be a methodology with I did have a research around thinking like how did they do it? <laughs> yeah. Like you, I couldn't find it, but I thought it was because I wasn't quite looking in the right place. But no, no. I had a good dig and didn't find a methodology, and uh, that can be that's that kind of raises a few a few red flags for me. There must be one sitting on a on a computer somewhere, and I personally I want to see that shared publicly. So for you, next year's one would have a methodology, which would be a good start. I think yeah. I have to echo that methodology. Then we'll solve social mobility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, next year, what would we see? Um, and maybe just a commitment from some of the from employers to visit a wider proportion of universities. Mm. That would be good. Um, you know, so the, the like an interesting thing from, or maybe you know, a particular sector. So they've got particular sectors, and they make a commitment to say, okay, as a sector, we will do X. And that's what we're doing for social mobility, mm. and concentrating on that, and, and looking at what impact that's had over. A, particular time period and I think actually that question of which universities are visiting segues quite nicely into the the third and final bit of research we were going to discuss which is um, looking at I suppose in a nutshell going beyond seeing access as the be all and the end all for um, kind of in terms to the extent to which higher education is a lever of social mobility you know if you if you go through higher education we know that there are benefits to your your earnings and your potential to kind of end up somewhere different to where you started, where your parents managed to get to at the end of their lives. Um, Then we know that we can't just talk about whether you get to university or into higher education, but how you do, you know, where it is you go and study, what course you do, what kind of honours you come away with. Um, And the Bridge Group did a, um, I think they're part of King's College London, did a really interesting research report looking at just that. Basically, I thought more than anything, it was a really nice statement of 
that truth, which is that we can't just keep talking in terms of accessing higher education, but like, okay, for the people who get there, actually there are still really big disparities um, from their angle in terms of um, socioeconomic status, like advantage versus disadvantaged um, students in the kind of stuff they get involved in at university and, and what they come away with later. And so, you know, if employers are still only visiting a very narrow band of universities, we know, for instance, that they're, because young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to go to a local university, they might be systematically missing out on, you know, on disadvantaged young people in their, in their droves. So It's interesting what you were saying about what they're likely to be involved in when they're there. Can you unpick that a little bit? Yeah, the report was, um, it was a really, it, it shed light on a whole load of factors that I haven't really seen explicitly considered in, in research before. Um, and they basically found quite a strong link between graduate earnings, so the earnings that young people go on to achieve when they leave university, and, quite, and their involvement in um, extracurricular activities, both before they go into higher education, but also while they're there, which I thought was, was really mm-hmm. interesting. I guess it chimes with that stuff that we already know to some extent um, about having those broader capitals, if you like. So you might go into university and, and come away with a good, a good degree, but if you've also done some internships or some, some, uh, some paid work that's related to your course, or you've run a club or society or something like this, then these are all things you can demonstrate to an employer who wants to, who wants to employ someone with a wide range of skills. Do you know what this reminds me of? Um, mm. There was maybe a year or two ago something from UCAS about personal statements. Do you remember that? Mm. And they were talking about um, uh, breaking down, I think the Sutton Trust did a bit of research about it, what kind of personal statements were most likely to get a, an offer. Okay. Yeah, and so um, students from high-performing secondary schools or private schools had really, really different types of personal statements compared to other students and what this is why the students mm. and it was partly to do with the advice they got in terms of writing them but it ties in a little bit with what we we're saying so basically the ones who'd shown really really strong subject knowledge but kind of in an extracurricular way if that, doesn't, if that makes sense so I don't know maybe you want to go and read history somewhere but if you could show that you'd gone and I don't know done something with your local historical society for example mm. maybe you were part of a weekend reenactment thing then that might have helped. And it sounds not dissimilar to what you're saying mm. later on, actually, when you're at university. Yeah. Mm. So I knew up until now that personal statements were, like, and still are, a huge barrier in the system for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds getting into higher education. They're just, uh, for all the obvious reasons, you know, if you can't reel off a really impressive list of all the, you know, all the foreign travel you've done and the unpaid internships you've been able to take advantage of, then that's obviously a, a real disadvantage. Um, but this report goes one step further and says actually that stuff continues to disadvantage you even if you do manage to get into university um, you know, you're, it looks as though young, disadvantaged young people are less likely to continue to take part in those sorts of things um, for instance over their summer breaks or, or while they're studying in term time and secondly that, that that has a really strong correlation with their, their earnings when they come out the other end and it also makes me think about how you know, in some more socially deprived schools there's a complete narrow in the curriculum to make sure that they get the required number of GCSEs. So some of the more extracurricular type things or things that might round them out are cut. 
and it might be the message that we're sending to young people is okay it's only the academics that are important mm. and then that might also carry on when you go to university so you might just be like okay I've got to get a first I've got to get a first mm. not knowing that actually you need to get a good degree alongside doing all these other things that show you're a rounded person but not just that but showing you're a rounded person that can particularly handle that particular type of field yeah um, of endeavour so that's mm. uh, all these complicated messages that are, that are not necessarily going to be obvious to people whose families are not used to going to university for example mm. and I think the insights of this report just picking up on that have, have quite interesting and complex recommendations for policy because I think when it comes to um, the barriers of application to higher education I think there's a lot that universities can do to say okay you know what well, we're not going to put a tick next to things like internships we're actually going to disregard that stuff because we know they're so disproportionately allocated to young people from advantaged backgrounds it's just it's not socially just to consider that stuff when we're when young people are applying to university I think unpaid internships are kind of pretty morally dubious but taking advantage of paid internships or opportunities to work or maybe to volunteer um, or to maybe try and find opportunities to travel if we can make opportunities like that more open to everyone and I think they they should be available um, it's just at the moment they're quite skewed socially in, in their availability so I don't think they should be considered on entry but I think we should try and encourage everyone to have access to them once they're, once they're there How would that be like via bursaries or how would that look? Yeah I mean I guess some of it would, would have to be coming from bursaries and that's an interesting question because we know that higher education funding is moving away from kind of a essentially state subsidised model to you know student contribution mm. so I suppose you want to see some kind of redistribution of that funding from from students uh, who are better off to those who aren't so like, what, like a pupil premium almost for higher education something like that yeah that who knows fun? which would probably have to be funded if it wasn't funded centrally it would have to be funded just from the contributions of those who go so it would be like a like a mini tax on on better off students um, this I can is see all... you getting elected office even as we speak, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But... Vote for more taxes. Yeah, a, a mini tax on students. Um, probably not the the most catchy or popular policy. Also, quite back of the fag packet. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, that, you know, higher education funding has shifted so much in the last few years that what's possible or the way in which you would fund these things has to be thought of really differently now. Um, I also think it's just that like, working with employers is. Is really important so it raises a whole set of questions about okay how how widely available are opportunities to to do things like internships well this goes back to our social mobility index doesn't it in some ways it's right. kind of and i think employers would probably benefit hugely from that because they would if they are genuinely interested in improving social mobility then that will be a way of ensuring that the opportunities um, that they have and the way that they employ people are far more kind of evenly evenly dispersed through the system. Also, from a purely commercial aspect, um, not all of the customers of these companies come from a particular social group, we would assume. So it would be good to have people in their team in various positions who understand the demographic of various people who are their customers, yeah, rather than right. thinking that it's just one particular group. Just from a purely commercial point of view. Yeah, so. absolutely. I think I think some employers are genuinely starting to cotton on to the fact that you know more diverse workforces aren't just a kind of a target or a tick box thing, but they they might actually benefit. Um, you know, personally, um, I think higher education institutions are having the same kind of moment 
right now, which is to say actually with a more diverse student population, what would that mean for the world of academia and the kind of insights that academic study could generate if, um, you know, one, one particular example would be a field like, you know, the studies of class or of working class people. Up until now, it's just essentially been middle class people coming up with theories and descriptions of working class life. But as more working class people manage somehow, and to their credit, to, to make it into this world of higher education and academia, they bring their own insights and say, actually, you know what, you, you know, that stuff's okay. Yeah, we, we think that's, this is a valid contribution, but this stuff is, is way off. Here's our interpretation. And the whole field moves off in wonderful new far more constructive directions because they're there and they've managed to make it. So I think if that starts to happen across the board, then academia will be improved as a result. Yeah, definitely. Um, We've had a good social mobility chat, Sam. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye. Expand the pool of people that we employ from because we're consistently missing out on... That was the uh, okay. <laughs> that was the index hitting the floor. Um. <laughs>